For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to our expanded offering of exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member bonus briefs, and our DSR Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening at 5 p.m. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your podcast app of choice. Join now for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com and select Become a Member. And don't miss our upcoming mini-series featuring interviews with some of the key players from David's upcoming book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another of our special episodes when we here at uh, DSR take a look at a book that we think is not only a good book, but that is a book that you ought to read, you ought to buy. And uh, this week, the conversation is with uh, an old colleague and friend, Tom Ricks, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning military historian whose latest book, Waging a Good War, A Military History of the Civil Rights Movement, 1954 to 1968, has come out to great acclaim, like all his other books do. So I congratulate you again on that, Tom. But I think one of the things that I've struck by in this book is that it really shifts the paradigm, shifts the paradigm on how we look at this period, but I also think may end up shifting the paradigm on how we look at a lot of other kinds of conflict. So welcome, Tom, first of all. Thank you. I actually really enjoyed writing this book much more than most of my other books because it was so different. It was an enjoyable subject. It's a hard subject. People went through hell in the civil rights movement. But it, it, the bottom line, instead of some dumb war like Iraq, these were good people doing good things that improved America. Yeah, it's very interesting because we talk about good wars, but they are few and far between. Yeah. Often wars are conflicts where it's all ambiguous. Uh, but this, this is was a nonviolent war, and they held to nonviolence, and they changed the country nonviolently. And I think that's the, the magnificent moral achievement. Yeah, and there were good guys and bad guys. I mean, there were definitely two sides to this one. Well, part of it is uh, the civil rights movement learned. It was a learning organization. And one of the things it learned very well was pick good enemies. After they took on a smart police chief in Albany, Georgia, they said, we're not going to do that again. And they took on the dumbest and most brutal police chiefs in the South, Bull Connor in Birmingham and Sheriff Jim Clark in Selma, Alabama. This goes to the quality of the leadership, and I want to get to that in a minute, but let, let, me, let me go back to the origins of this, this question of 
how is this like a war? Why did you uh, see it through that lens, beside the fact this is what you've written about? And as I read it, and and, and I really couldn't recommend it more strongly, it, you know, to me, certain things leap out. First of all, there's conflict at the heart of it. Uh, there, there is a need for strategy and tactics flow from strategy. And violence was a component of it. And also the fear of death, of physical violence on the part of those fighting in this war on, on behalf of the civil rights movement. Are those the factors that led you there? Or was there something else or some anecdote that triggered this? More than an anecdote, it was my wife. My wife was a member of high school friends of SNCC. Uh, she was the president of the Washington, D.C. chapter in the early 1960s. And in fact, her best friend in the world, she met when they were arrested together in a demonstration at the time of Selma. So for years, for decades, my wife and I would be driving along. And somebody would come on NPR talking about civil rights or something. And she'd say, oh, I know that person. Or, oh, yeah, that person was really funny. He told this story. And so when I had some time a few years ago, just for fun and to better understand my wife's past, I began reading histories of the civil rights movement. And I, the more I read, the more I said, wait a second, this is like a military operation. You know, Montgomery, Alabama, in military terms, the, the bus boycott in 1955 was the siege of a city. The Freedom Rides in 1961 were effectively a raid behind enemy lines. So I said, this is interesting. You can really think about this in military terms. I'm going to go find a book on the subject. And I couldn't find a book on the subject. I actually sat down and looked at a database of 200 doctoral dissertations on the civil rights movement in the last three decades. Nobody ever looked at the civil rights movement as a military campaign. And so I said, I think I might try this. And the more I wrote it, the more it struck me. Yeah. And, you know, there's one other group of people out there who thought of this as a war, all the people inside the movement. They talked about things like front lines, combat, going to war in Mississippi. They conceived of these as operations, as campaigns. They were so focused on military tasks, especially training and discipline. It's interesting to me, again and again, in interviews and transcripts, of even in FBI wiretaps, they're talking about discipline, how essential it is if you're going to march, maintain discipline. The discipline, for example, required of someone to maintain a nonviolent posture when somebody spits in their face and then puts out a cigarette on their back. To do that, people needed good training, and they trained for months for those civil rights sit-ins to desegregate lunch counters. They role-played in basements of churches night after night. One group of students would play the sit-in kids. One group would play the attackers. They would kick out the chairs from underneath them. They'd pour hot coffee on them. And then the two would switch, and they'd role-play the other, the other side. So they learned to overcome the natural human instinct to flee or fight and instead maintain a pose of dignity and humanity. Uh, one thing they actually taught them was, if somebody spits in your face, ask them for a handkerchief. And you will, for that one moment, make a connection. So one student does it, somebody spits in his face. He says, sir, do you have a handkerchief? And the guy reaches for his back pocket and then says, hell no. But for one moment, 
he had touched him. Uh, it was the discipline to do that sort of thing. So they talked again and again about training and discipline, but really, as you mentioned strategy, it began with strategy. They understood that the beginning point, the point of departure has to be strategy. You don't want to be like the U.S. Army, which is great at tactics and training, but has, is very poor at strategy, so it winds up like a Ferrari without a steering wheel. And the question they asked themselves, I think is a brilliant strategic approach. Their first question is, who are we? And what are we trying to do? They define themselves, which first of all, is a great act of self-liberation, not to let other people define what you are. The answer they arrive at is, we are people who will no longer live with segregation. And as Diane Nash put it, now we understand you white people may kill us for that, but that's on you. That's not our problem. We no longer live with segregation. You have to figure out if you're going to kill us or learn to live with it. From that flowed extraordinary tactics. Once they said, yeah, we understand we might die. The uh, Freedom Rides in 1961, before they allow volunteers to join the Freedom Rides, they say, we need two things from you. A signed last letter to your parents and a signed last will and testament. So when officials of Bobby Kennedy's Justice Department called them up and said, you don't understand. We know they are going to burn your bus tomorrow. Diane Nash, who's their spokesperson, responds, oh, we know that. We understand that. You're going to die, he says. No, we understand that. We got that. Do you have any other questions? To the point at which Diane Nash is frustrating both the city government of Birmingham, Alabama, the Alabama state government, and the attorney general, Robert Kennedy, who at one point turns and shouts to an aide, who the hell is Diane Nash? Well, she was a 20-year-old college dropout living in the YWCA in Nashville, but she was running a brilliant operation. So, you know, it strikes me, putting this perhaps in too broad a historical context, but that, you know, for most of human history, when one group wanted to fight another group, they picked up sharp sticks or sharp implements and went at each other. And there was a certain parity. Industrial revolution comes along. The state develops huge advantages. Big states develop huge advantages. And so there comes a need, a growing need, for asymmetric conflict. And, you know, there are a couple of techniques that at the time your book begins were front of mind, right? One of them was Gandhi nonviolent conflict where he essentially took on the most powerful force in the world, the British Empire, and defeated it nonviolently. The other is guerrilla conflict, which we were beginning to encounter in places like Vietnam. But this seems to me that, you know, this is a, a, a yet another example, if you look at it this way, of asymmetric conflict, primarily civil, but with elements, sufficient elements of conflict to be able to view it in this light. Absolutely. And I think this non, the civil rights movement is a particularly illuminating example because the system it's taking on was not some sort of agreement between people about how we want to live. It was a repressive system from the get-go. Slavery was built on violence. If you don't produce what we want, you'll be whipped. You could be raped. You could be killed. 
without any consequences. If you run away, we will cut off your toes. It was called hobbling, and it was a common practice. After slavery, Black people briefly have rights in the South for a very short period in the late 1860s, early 1870s. And then those rights are repealed. Land is taken away from Black people. They are pushed out of new positions as sheriffs, school teachers, mayors, members of Congress. And it's an extraordinary repressive system in America in the late 19th and early 20th century built again on violence. So if you're going to challenge that system, if you use the language of violence, well, they speak that language fluently. Turning to nonviolence, though, the civil rights movement flummoxed the white power structure of the South. They were speaking a language that simply was not understood. And they understood also that the white South, the dominant caste, had been telling the rest of the country, don't worry, we know how to handle Black people. We know them. We've got this under control. That was okay, I think, until television came along. Suddenly, this myth that we're taking care of it, don't worry about it, is, is out of television in the form of police dogs and fire hoses being turned on children in the spring of 1963 in Birmingham, Alabama. Eight-year-old kids are being rolled down the street by fire hoses so powerful that the water flow will strip the bark off a tree. And America, including President John F. Kennedy, look at the television and say, wait a second, this is not what we were told was how the South was run. We are seeing the savage face of a violent system of repression. This uh, is unsustainable in the era of television. And that's really when Kennedy, for the first time, steps up and starts talking seriously about civil rights. And the, the response to Birmingham is fascinating. Here you've had Bull Connor, the police and security chief in Birmingham, show his vision of how we're going to run the country, police dogs, firehouses. A few months later, the Civil Rights Movement holds the March on Washington, August 1963. 250,000, mainly Black people, come from all over the country, meet together nonviolently, not a single arrest that day, and then they leave at the end of the day. It is the largest interracial gathering in American history, the largest demonstration up to that point in the history of the nation's capital. And at the end of that day, Martin Luther King gets up and gives his speech about the dream he has, a dream in which Black people will be treated decently with equal rights. So here you've had two visions presented, the nightmare vision of Bull Connor and the dream of Martin Luther King. And America says, you know, we're going to go with that King guy. So it was a real triumph, both of operations and of discipline in how they presented themselves and in understanding the information environment. It was a lot of work. One thing that's really striking to me is how much time people in the civil rights movement spent in meetings. I actually have an op-ed piece coming out in the Boston Globe in a couple of days about this. They were really good at meetings. And most Americans, most people, people aren't good at meetings. They took meetings very seriously. As one person said, we take meetings seriously because when you're asking people to put their lives on the line, you gotta give them a chance to be heard. The SNCC meetings, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, 
Indeed, they went on not for just for hours, but for days. And what I love about this is their record keeping is so good. You, I sat and read the transcripts and the archives of three-day meetings where they're arguing strategy. Because as you know, strategy is hard. The old military saying, if you're not crying when you're making strategy, you're not making strategy. Strategy is about essential, difficult decisions, about separating the essential from the merely important. They were very good at that. And I think that's one reason they prevailed. I wish the US military would take a page from the civil rights movement and learn more about how to formulate and execute strategy. In terms of making strategy, you know, you talked about the quality of the training and the commitment of the troops, you know, the people who were out there, the foot soldiers of all this. But I'm I was also interested in the way that you handled the leadership. And you know, I, I think it's quite clear that the leadership of the civil rights movement was better than the leadership of the segregation and anti-civil rights movement in many key respects. I admire that sometimes you're critical of them. But one thing struck me particularly when you were talking about King in the early days of the 60s, and he does not, you know, he, he, he has a big vision, but he, he very deliberately, it seems, from, from your book, makes a decision not to try to change everything at once, to do it incrementally. Now, one of the, I mean, this is a kind of out from left field analogy, but, you know, you know, you know where I come from on this. But I, I remember reading Martin Indyk's really good book about Kissinger and Middle East diplomacy in the 70s. And whatever you may think about Kissinger, the thing that made it work to the extent it worked was that the idea was don't change everything. I can't change. I can't achieve peace broadly for everybody. I'm going to. I'm going to focus on what I can achieve, and then I'll work from there. That seems to me to be analogous, and and maybe you have other analogies from military leaders, but that this notion is think big, but then act incrementally. Well, it's very much where Gandhi comes from, and I can't emphasize enough how important the thinkings and the acts of Gandhi were for the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr. studied Gandhi when he was in seminary. James Bevel, a key strategist in the movement, was even more into Gandhi. They knew specific examples. When Gandhi faced this problem, this is what he did. For example, on the Salt March, Gandhi emphasized the more likely you are to face violence, the more disciplined your people must be. For the famous Salt March to the Sea, he only had 38 marchers. They were his best nonviolent resistors. Now, they were greeted by crowds of 50,000, but he relied on his best people for that. Again, well-trained people who understand what they're, they're trying to do. They also really, as their song had it, kept their eyes on the prize, on the end game, in a way the U.S. military does not. For them, they always knew the end game was reconciliation. And this goes to the point about Kissinger. Bite off what you can now. Don't think the whole thing's over just because you have an agreement. Think about implementation and implement in small ways that reassert and emphasize the change every day. So in Montgomery, Alabama, early on, they win the integration of the buses. They don't just say, okay, fine, buses are integrated and they all go to the beach to celebrate. They put ministers on the bus, on each bus to monitor the behavior 
of black passengers to make sure that the bus company is not given an excuse to say this isn't working. Even more strikingly, in Birmingham, after they win the desegregation of downtown restaurants, in their last step is they begin training the white population, the former enemy. Think of the brilliance of that, to have in your war plan, we're going to train the enemy at the end. What do I mean by that? What they do is they call ahead and say, hey, you know your restaurant that is now required to be desegregated, we're thinking of coming in for lunch tomorrow. What time would be convenient for you? First, it's a polite way of saying, hey, we're coming in. But it's polite and asking, you know, can we work this out? You want us to come at 11 o'clock? We'll come at 11 o'clock. It's a way of showing up and training the restaurant owner, the staff, the white patrons. Okay, now we're going to live with integration and we're going to help train you to live with that rather than make you figure out figure it out on your own. We've done this before in other places. We know how to do this. So again and again, that sort of strategic brilliance leading to innovative tactics and ability to change as necessary, to learn from mistakes, to see which people are good at different things and to put them in those positions. One person I really emphasize in the book is James Bevel, fascinating figure. I think of him as kind of the William Tecumseh Sherman of the civil rights movement. Important strategically, he's the guy in Birmingham who says, well, if the adults of Birmingham won't march because they're afraid of losing their jobs, which, they, which was right, because they're afraid of being beaten in jail, which was right, we're going to get the kids to march. And he gets thousands of kids to march. He swamps the jail system. And finally, Bull Connor says, well, I don't have any more jail cells. I know what I'll do. I'll make the kids stop marching by turning on the fire hoses and the police dogs. Later on, Bevel and Selma, very upset over the shooting in the stomach of Jimmy Lee Jackson, a young black man who was trying to protect his mother from the police, says, I'm upset by this. I'm going to do something. I'm going to walk from Selma to Montgomery. He invents the Selma to Montgomery march. Bevel, though, as well as being a good strategist, also was very good at thinking on his feet. One time he's uh, in a church in South Georgia giving the Sunday sermon as the guest minister. In the middle of his sermon, a local white sheriff walks into the church, puffing on a cigar, pretty disrespectful in the middle of a service. Bevel is up in the pulpit, doesn't miss a beat. He says, you know, the good thing is, yes, the devil will come after you, but the devil will always give you a sign. Sometimes he's got that little forky, forky tail. Sometimes he's carrying a pitchfork. And sometimes... He's smoking a cigar. The whole church laughs. The sheriff stomps out angry. You've seen an upsetting in the system there where black parishioners are laughing at this local white supremacist power figure, the sheriff, who no doubt had terrified many of them as individuals. Well, that night, of course, the church is burned. Bethel says, all I'm doing is showing you the true face of the system. It is built on violence. And that's what we're trying to change. If I have this roughly right, in, in your mind, the, the march from Selma to Montgomery is kind of the decisive battle in all of this, the Gettysburg or something like that. And, and of course, we get Voting Rights Act shortly after that. It comes directly out of Selma, yeah. What is it that sets that march apart? A couple of things. Birmingham, I would say, is the Gettysburg of the 
campaign. It's, it's the one that really kind of flips the nation. That's 100 years exactly after Gettysburg. Selma is the movement hitting all cylinders. They're trained. Their people are trained. They all understand each other. They know how this works. And they are playing the white power structure like a violin. They've picked Selma for two reasons. First, the sheriff is like Bull Connor, but he's like a really stupid version of Bull Connor. And they could play him. Second thing is the white power structure is kind of divided. And they always would look for that, especially a division between the political structure and the business community. Because if you could have the business community say, we're not, we were for segregation as long as there wasn't a cost, but this is costing us. So if you had an economic boycott, blacks stay away and then whites stay away for fear of violence, the business people go to the political structure and say, this isn't working for us. Selma, they do all these things. They do them brilliantly. The system reacts with extraordinary violence, not just the famous march over the bridge, but in towns around there. Really, the state police are just rioting under the control of Governor Wallace, doing things like just chasing every Black person in the streets. They're pushing pistols in the people's mouth and cocking them while they supposedly ask them questions. They're shooting people. The response is the march over the Edmund Pettus Bridge, which I would liken to a frontal assault, not unlike Pickett's Charge. Sometimes you never want to do a frontal assault, but sometimes it's the only military option left. Turned out better than Pickett's Charge, though. I mean. Well, it does. The movement does. They take a real beating that day, though. People are auxiliary militia, basically KKK, on horseback, are riding into the marchers, hitting them with batons wrapped in barbed wire. John Lewis is hit, hit so hard in the back of a he his head that apparently, as I understand it, a piece of his skull flew out. It was extraordinary. Somebody, in part of the great SNCC records, there's somebody calling in, watching all this in real time, and says, John's, John Lewis has a hole in his head. They triumph there, and with that frontal assault, I would say the subsequent march from Selma to Montgomery is the equivalent of chasing an enemy in retreat. And every military expert knows that that's when you have your greatest run-up of casualties is when you are rout the enemy and he is retreating in disarray, which is what happened. Basically, George Wallace shuts down and the movement nonviolently takes over Montgomery, Alabama, the capital of the Confederacy. That's fascinating. By the way, you're extremely gentle in sidestepping the way that I conflated Birmingham, Selma, and Montgomery. And I'm grateful for that. You get to the end of the book and you deal with the fact that the Voting Rights Act is being undone as we speak. It's likely to continue being undone. Uh, other aspects of, of what was achieved in this conflict are being undone. And as I read that, I then sort of flipped forward to the discussions that are so common today about we're in a civil war in the United States. We're on the verge of a civil war in the United States. And I just thought I, I would kind of wanted to end by getting your take, having looked at civil conflict in the United States in a somewhat different way, and thus I think being open to the idea that conflict can take many forms. What do you think of this idea of contemporary civil war? 
I wrote an op-ed about this about a month ago for the Washington Post. I was really worried after January 6th. I had been worried about an American Civil War for several years. In fact, wrote about it first in 2017. And when January 6th happened, I thought, oh my God, this could be the beginning. And I thought we'd see things like assassinations of federal judges, state governments saying we will no longer obey federal authority in certain areas, nullification juries that said we don't care how guilty this guy is, we're going to disregard the evidence. These were a lot of things you saw before the American Civil War. In fact, we didn't see any of them. What we saw instead was the invaders of the Capitol turned out to be a bunch of whiners. We don't want to go to jail for what we did. We don't have the courage of our convictions. Law and order, that's for other people. Sure, we beat up some policemen, but we were unhappy. They just didn't think all these rules apply to them. By contrast, when the members of the civil rights movement were arrested, they welcomed it. They said, okay, this gives us a platform to discuss why we are doing what we are doing. Put us in jail. Put thousands of us in jail. Look at the letter from Birmingham jail that Martin Luther King writes. He explains the positions of the movement to the nation. None of that happens. In fact, the insurrectionists all retreat to social media and have this kind of clownish former president tied up with legal problems, kind of petering out and not really have anything new to say. I think it's a perfect ending to January 6th. They turned out not to have a lot of gumption. Well said. Also an appropriate ending for this, our conversation. The book is Waging a Good War, a Military History of the Civil Rights Movement, 1954 to 1968. The author is Pulitzer Prize winning writer Tom Ricks, who has written a lot of other great books, and I encourage you to take a look at them. Uh, But start with this one. Uh, And we will be back in the days ahead with more on many of the themes that Tom has uh, covered here. For now, thank you, Tom, and thank you to everybody for listening.